Welcome to Pivot, a podcast for church leaders, co-sponsored by Luther Seminary's Faith Lead and Lead. Welcome to Pivot. I'm Terry Elton. And I'm Louise Johnson. And with us today is my dear friend and colleague, Caprice Jones. And Caprice and I had the opportunity to meet several years ago when we were both living in Dubuque and had the chance to spend lots of time talking together, not only about leadership, but also about faith. And so I'm just really excited to welcome you here today, Caprice. I wonder if you might just say a little bit about who you are and the context that you are coming from, both the Fountain of Youth and Dubuque. Thanks for having me today. My name is Caprice Jones, and I was born on the south side of Chicago. And I grew up on the south side of Chicago, the west side of Chicago, also rural Illinois. My story, um, it transcended a lot of individuals that was trapped in mass incarceration, trapped in generational poverty, and trapped in a world of um, confusion. And it landed me to Dubuque once I uh, began to step outside my comfort zones. And I wanted to get married. And I married uh, the love of my life. And we have three beautiful children. And I am the founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization called the Fountain of Youth Program. And Dubuque, Iowa has been an ongoing learning experience in the process of change and embracing what comes from it. I mean, I love Dubuque. I'm a Dubuquer. I was from Chicago. So I'm curious, how long has this organization been going and how did it get started? Well, this organization has been existing since 2016. In August 2016, I received a vision one morning and that vision entailed Nonprofit organizations are very vital in this hour in history, but they must begin to point to each other. That particular vision has been driven through my life, and we touched countless amount of individuals during that time. I estimate about a thousand people we've served. It's an unlimited amount of people that we've served that I don't even know of. And it's amazing that you asked that question because the Founding Youth Program has opened up doors all over the world in such a short amount of time through different people. Just tell us a story or two about somebody, some of the people that you've worked with through Fountain of Youth that have graduated from some of the programs and just some of the success stories. Well, I'll give you um, a success story of an individual that just came to my office today. She's a, a single parent. She's been in and out of different institutions all her life. And when she came to me, she was um, in the halfway house down here. She joined a program that we started with the city of Dubuque that was dealing with trauma. And she just wanted to see what it was like. Unbeknownst that she discovered that to be the best group that we've ever hosted. And it led her to becoming one of my number one participants and success stories. And the reason why she came today is because she's fresh out the hospital, psych ward. During the time of the pandemic, she tried her best to survive through the storm the best way she knew how. And as a result, her brain health, or what's formerly known in Iowa as uh, mental illness or mental health, it's called brain health now, began to get tested. And she's been in and out of the hospital because of different unresolved traumas in her life that's been triggered by drugs and alcohol. She came by the day she's been out the hospital for a couple of days. I've been by her side since she's been in and out of the hospital. 
police has been involved. We've advocated for them not to look at her as a criminal because she's sick. I don't consider her to be a failure because she's sick. She need help. And she called me today and she said, Caprice, can I come and give you a hug? And I told her, absolutely. She came and gave me a hug. Because, and then she asked me to pick a priest. I got some work to do with myself now to get myself back on track. But am I still allowed to work with this program with you? She finished the program. The requirements of the program, she's been completed. She's a success story for many others that has joined the program because of her. And we all talk about her now, not in the aspect of a laughing stock or a failure or a disappointment, but as a person that is still a success story that needs help. I love that you're pointing to someone who has learned and grown and continues to have ongoing challenges, like all of us do, right? So the mark of success, as I, I think you're pointing to, is not our lives are free from struggle or trouble, which they never will be, but that it's how we cope in the thick of them and how we manage to navigate differently. And I know that's lots of the work that you have been doing with people throughout the time that you've been working with them. Tell us a little bit about when the pandemic hit, what were the kinds of things that changed for you with Fountain of Youth and what was your experience of that as a leader? Well, one one of the things that changed for me was like really not falling into complacency or accepting any distractions, fear and desperation. Those are distractions, the same as racism. That came up, right? That was a distraction. Classisms, those were distractions. Free money, it's a distraction. So, you know, I'm a man of faith. The Founding Youth Program is not a faith-based organization on paper, but it's faith-based inside of my heart. And it was designed that way. Because I received a vision from God for the founding of you. It didn't come from me. And then so I got, I got birthed into a new realm when the pandemic hit. I died to the old ways of life. I had to. It's time to go to a different dimension. This new dimension in our men is literally decreasing so that he'll increase in the lives of many people in this world. So it's kind of like, it was time for me to go on into perfection, which is known to be maturity. And you got to start from the bottom to go up. So he's been taking me deeper into my own life so that I can be able to be transparent in the individual lives that he want to take them through a journey to go to another level in their own life. And it's me basically sharing my faults and his grace. I listened to that and it's it's both profound to me and I bet super hard because I don't know about you, but when the pandemic hit, there's like two or three levels of my life that had to be recalibrated. So this calling of your work, but I'm like, I bet there were just details in your house you had to recalibrate. It can sound neat and tidy today, but I bet it wasn't. So one of the questions that I have for you, is there a particular moment or practice that kind of embodies, what did that look like in the midst of it all? And so sometimes what looks like a good thing in that dying to our own self and to carrying this out actually can be not a good thing. So I'd love for you to just give me a story or an example of what did that look like on the ground? Because I just imagine it was super hard. 
in my own household, I had to like stay true to, I had to stay true to the definition of who I am. So to my mission, because, you know, I'm only in my wife's life for a season. I'm in my children's life for a season. I'm in my parents' life for a season. And true to my mission is being actually who I say I am. And so I had to learn how to be a better husband so that I could bring a sense of security to my wife to know that we're going to be all right because I'm willing to learn how to grow through this as well. And we're not going to panic. Survival, right? And like, am I willing to learn different ways of us being able to really understand how to survive without being desperate and like giving up or compromising my integrity? Same way with the organization. When the pandemic hit, relief went into different stages. Relief for grants was based on basically giving out food, you know, because that's a basic human need as far as a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And it's basically physiological. And so everybody was focused on giving organizations like to pass out food. But that's not our mission. Our mission is to change the mindsets that contributes to generational poverty. So I had to trust that sticking firm to my mission, but yet still being flexible to understand that that is something that's needed. But that ain't all that's needed. There is also a part of recovery because uh, mental health and mental illness has been on an all-time high. People need to be able to heal beyond their traumas. So I had to understand that my mission, I got to live and die for what my mission is. And my mission is to change the mindsets that contributes to generational poverty by not giving out handouts, but hand ups. So we got to be able to, you know, be able to understand, like, just keep doing what we're doing and help us on the way. One of the things that came to mind as you were saying that is this transformation, this moment within the lives of the people that you're called to serve, you were embodying. Like this isn't a one time, this happens once and it's done. You know that? Like the story that you told of that young woman, it's it's an ongoing and it's a deeper developmental maturity kind of thing. And I just got a, a picture of you saying, all right, Caprice, are you going to practice what you preach? Are you willing to open yourself to the same kind of transformation that you're inviting these young people into or others into? And you did some work and training with seminary students at Wartburg when I served there. And so I wonder if you'd say just a little bit about that experience. And then also just in terms of your own life of faith, right? So, I mean, part of what you and I did was to try and experiment doing Bible study, right? We started a Sunday afternoon Bible study that we did for a while, but just how that's a driver for you. Cause I know that's really such a significant part of how you think about and where you just find energy and motivation to do the work you do. I just thought about our Warburg experience with the uh, seminary students. And because of you, you being true, to who you are and allowing yourself to be vulnerable, to be used in a capacity that was beyond man comprehension, it opened up the doors for the founding youth. I don't know if you remember, but you actually allowed us to have our first fundraising campaign at the seminary. And not only that, you uh, connected us to the students so that they can have an experience of real life experience on the ground with individuals who pastors would serve. And the door was opened up for them to help me grow because they actually designed the curriculum for our group sessions that we use right now. And 
our core program came out of the vein of me sitting across from a couple of the students at Warburg Seminary, and we was brainstorming about like how we're going to take things to another level once they're gone. And we talked about, we said like, oh, we can't call it partners. We need to get a structured program. And it was like, what would we call it? I said, well, it can't be like partners in crime because, you know, we was dealing with, you know, a lot of people that was in jail. So that's what our thoughts was deriving from these things. And I was like, we can't be calling it partners in crime. And then one of the students, she said, why not partners in change? And now you have partners in change is changing the whole dynamics of the state of Iowa. And that came from her being a part of this. But it came from you being willing to expose them to what the definition of helping others really mean. People that really need it. And they're invisible. So they, they was exposed to the people that's usually invisible. It was a great, and hopefully still is a great partnership, right? Because our students learned and grew and had opportunity to to grow in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise to. Would you say a little bit, just a little bit more about your own faith and how that has been a driver? Well, you got to remember my faith, my mustard seed began to sprout out in uh, Cook County Jail back in 1997, before I went to prison for the first time for four years and seven months. I was faced with insurmountable odds, but it had not yet really started to really truly develop until 2002 when I was released from prison and was on my way back to prison for something even worse than I went to prison the first time. And then I started really wanting to know what faith really meant. And I began to like examine it through, it was personal relationship, right? It was like, talking to God in the cell. I was hiding, actually, because I was still like, I was a gang leader. And I literally was hiding because that was not acceptable behavior out of someone that's in the gang. Like, to be that's like, you know, as I'm thinking anyway, I'm sneaking, reading Psalms 23. And then I got led to um, a scripture that really, like, opened up a lot of things. It was faith as small as a mustard seed. This mountain can be moved. I kept reading every day, and I kept going to court every other week. I'm like, what is the scripture talking about faith and mustard seed? And a mountain could be moved. And then it was like an aha moment. Bing! Right now, this is like a mountain that I'm in front of me. I can't even get around this. I don't have no money. I'm poor. My mother told me the only thing I could do is pray. And it's like a mountain that I can't get over. I can't get around and I can't get under it. That situation. Ooh, some miraculous things took place. And I began to begin to actually experience a relationship with God. Now, I had not even tapped into a relationship with Jesus and let alone a relationship with the Holy Ghost. My first example was of faith, right? And he began to start moving that mountain and it was moved. So my journey had began to grow like a mustard seed, right? And it began to fill me up to like understanding like God could do anything and everything. And then I have a picture, I have a mural on my wall, and it's a scripture that really moved my life. Said, Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So that particular scripture really took my life to another level because I was like, man, I can't even change myself. Like, I can't even do nothing right. I'm constantly back in jail because I, the second time in prison, what the last time in prison, I went again. And then I went again. And then I started believing that God is the only one that could actually 
deliver me. And you talk about something like ending generational poverty. I think that's a huge goal, right? It's huge. And then when I start to hear the way that you have experienced God and those scriptures, right, that come to you. And I think so much of what church leaders are up against right now look like those kinds of mountains, right? That you said, you can't get over, you can't go around them, you can't go under them. And so where does that leave us, right? And so there's a lot of, as I'm working with church leaders, right, there's a lot of despair and a lot of, you know, weariness and all those kinds of things too. So I appreciate your sharing those and that story, because I think for us to recall again and again and again, that what's impossible for us is possible for God and that God can and does do far more than we can ask or imagine. And so those kinds of things, I think, become so critical for us in these days of really challenging leadership. You and I talked some right after George Floyd was killed, and you were beginning to do some work in the larger community of Dubuque. And I wonder if you just say a little bit more about what you did and uh, maybe some of what you learned in and through that process as well. That was a real interesting time, real interesting time in history because it's like the world has stopped again for the second time. First was the pandemic, and the world stopped, and then it comes something else, and. What I began to do was I started to like separate my thought processes from not getting distracted. And it started teaching me about what empathy really means and what love really means. What love means, because as a human, right, when I saw the George Floyd incident, the day that it happened, you know, I saw the video of it. And I was the raw video, one of the stuff that's probably hidden now, but it was actual video. And I was like, I didn't know, as a human, I didn't know how to respond, right? But I had to respond, you know, like as I'm looking at it, what, like, how do I respond to this? And the first thing I thought about was like how other human beings respond, right? And I'm like, no, I can't think like that because I'm called to not respond like other people. And so was natural. I was mad. I was angry. And in my mind, it was like, how could he do this to him? He don't even know it is. He calling for his mother. But God began to take me to a different place. He made me begin to start looking at the officer with empathy. Against popular thought process probably all over the country and all over the world. I said, this particular officer, he only doing what's probably normal or what's probably considered okay in the system that he's brought up in. And I said, he's sick. He's sick because he's been traumatized by his own job, the system that he lives in, indoctrinated. He's been a victim of isms. And so I'm like, he's not even in his right mind because it's not even humanly possible. He's been desensitized to humanity. So what would I want for somebody that is really sick? I got to look at it from an equitable lens, right? He needs to be healed because he's been trapped just like a lot of people. Because if I would have looked at him and I judged him and I said, oh, off with his head, type of person would I have been? Because only people that's expected to do better is if they truly know better. I don't think he even knew better. I think it's just that's the way life is. He needs to be educated about humanity. Humane education. What if he never got that? What if he'd been ignoring it? out of ignorance. Only God could judge that situation. 
And we got we got we've been commanded to judge not according to the outward appearance, but a righteous judge. And that's hard when you're struggling against that flesh. Because you want you want eye for eye. You want that person to feel the same pain. But hurt people hurt people. And what if he a hurt person? What if his daddy taught him to be that type of way? What if his mama taught him that way? Because if he knew better, he would do better. So it's obvious there's something wrong with that picture. So I felt, I felt sorry for him. I felt sorry for him. I felt sorry for humanity. Because there's a lot of people that make wrong decisions and they costly. But only God is the one that's got a heaven or a hell for them. So how did that turn into action in Dubuque? Well, you had different type of protests coming up. And I joined a, I joined a protest. It was a peaceful protest. I was asked to speak at it. And I spoke from the auspice of what I just spoke with you all about how do we get beyond this trauma? How do we heal this trauma that's in America? Everybody in America has been traumatized since the beginning and inception of America. It was actually rooted and grounded in an ism, capitalism. An ism is a schism. It's deceptions involved with theories and stuff that promotes the well-being of a human trying to escape basic needs being met because every human got to survive. And so when I spoke out, I always speak in the auspices of love, not hate. I mean, even if it's not accepted by everybody else, I'm willing to die to live. Yeah, that counterculture nature of faith is so hard in everyday life. But certainly in a moment like that, Caprice, the way that you talked about just trying to empathize with the officer is just a bridge that so many just couldn't even go. I struggled to try and figure out how to do that. I tried for a while praying for for him in my prayers because I, I was just so broken and I was so paralyzed and it was hard. I appreciate not only the the leaning into that, but the going deeper into that and the opening of saying, okay, if I'm about love, what does that entail? One of the things that I, to kind of put these last two conversations together that I'd love for you to talk about, as you talk about these moving mountains and these big visions, the word that kept coming in my mind was hope. Like you see a future of hope, even in the midst of major obstacles or despair. And so that, and then this other piece of this obstacle of of hate and trying to say love into hate, I feel like there's some part of you that is able to what I'm calling operationalize hope, like plant seeds of hope or bring others into a hope when they didn't have hope or giving little bits of hope that grow and build. So say more about the role of hope in your work, like that story about that young woman. There's a hopefulness there, even though it's messy, even though it's not fully realized at this time. And I wonder about how you do that. Well, um, before I get to that, I'm going to just tell you about how in 1995, I was in uh, North Carolina and I was hopeless. But yet I had hope. I put a gun in my head after I just stole it out of somebody's car for a quick split second. And then I, it's like something snatched it down. I know what that something is. It's the Holy Spirit. And I said this at 18 years old. 
man, one of these days, God is going to make everything change. I wanted to kill myself in a split second. It was like that wasn't even possible. And look what happened. So it's a scripture I run across in, uh, in Romans that talks about the creature was subject to vanity, not willingly, but by, it's, I'm paraphrasing, but by the one who subjected the same to hope. And then later on down in that scripture, it says, it is, uh, Romans 8, 28, about love. And then it talks about purpose. You want to hear it? Yep. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That's it right there. All things work together for those who love God and are called to his purpose. And so I told uh, one of my uh, members of the board of the founding youth, about how I look at everything in life. I said, all I ever had was hope. That's all I know is hope. I was born to exuberate hope out of my mouth because nothing ever was guaranteed to me. I'm a black man in America. I was born into a situation where I had nothing but hope. Or if I didn't, but the thing is, what gave me this hope? It was the faith also that was inside of me to even make that hope become a reality. Because when I put that gun in my head and something snatched it down, which I like it to be the Holy Spirit, now I understand it through my relationships, was that one day everything would change. And by faith, that was received. Because I walk by faith, not by sight, to even get to where I'm at right now. And that's how I live, by faith. Through the hope that was given to me through Jesus Christ. I'm thinking back to my days growing up and when we talked about walking by faith, not by sight, right? Like we do these at camp or in youth group, right? Like we'd blindfold people to give them the experience of what it felt like not to walk by sight. And it just strikes me that that was your reality. You didn't need a blindfold to understand what that meant. You were living it. You know, I mean, it's just something I just, I just want to add, you know, some you just struck me by. So you remember in the Bible when um, Jesus had said that that person was blind, not because of any sin that his mother or his father created. But that blindness really shows the power of God. Because that person still got a purpose. And so a person can be born a certain way and can't see something because they got to trust God to be able to lead them through everything. But we look at disabilities as a hindrance. But when I am weak, then am I strong. I want to test if I heard you right, Caprice. I hear faith operationalized through faith that is in you, like something. And like you didn't even know it was the Holy Spirit at the beginning. That came later. But I also go back to the, I want to come and give you a hug. I wonder if your hope, especially in this ministry or in this nonprofit, is through relationships that accompany people and not only say there's hope, but show up in people's lives and be the hope for others and kind of pull them into that future that you imagined. Is is that a fair way to talk about it? Absolutely. Because remember, I told you from the start on the Founding Youth Program, it was it was strict instructions I got. And one of them was not to make it a faith-based organization. Because everybody don't believe in Jesus Christ. But everybody need love. 
unconditionally. And the founder youth came from like really showing the truth about some things. There is actually a founder youth. Each individual that's been through something can pour into somebody else. And what you're doing is rejuvenating yourself, revitalizing yourself. So I have to pour into somebody else what was poured into me if it was something that set me free. So if I'm pouring into somebody else, encouragement, motivation, inspiration, and love, that's a beautiful life to live because a person feels like, guess what? My life matters, which is the truth. Any counsel you might give to our listeners who tend to be church leaders, just thoughts or counsel that you have. You know, I I said to a leadership group today that I was working with that we've been through some challenging seasons and I don't think those are over, right? Like I think we're, we're going to continue to be deeply challenged as leaders, right? And particularly leaders who are called by the gospel of Jesus Christ to lead in the world. And so I just wonder what counsel you might have from your own experience and what you might want them to hear or know as you think about this challenge that we face as leaders. I believe that uh, right now in a lot of people's lives as leaders, God is shaking things up and he's pruning. He's pruning time. But that's not a bad thing. (laughs) That's a great thing. Because he's dealing with you. The thing is, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not even yourself. But he's going to get you to where you got to get to. So got to go through the process. Now, surrender, right? So one of the most profound things happened today. I read a scripture. It's in Revelation. Revelation, the fifth chapter. And in that particular chapter, it was talking about the books being open. And God dealing with certain people. Jesus, the Lamb, the Root of David. He said... And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside. In the backside, that word came out to blew my mind. God showed me Moses on the backside of the mountain. And he also showed me John the Baptist. And this is what I would give encouragement to. I must decrease so that he increase. The least in the kingdom is the greatest in the kingdom. It's not about us. It's all about his will being done. We got to die daily. You don't feel good until we surrender and accept it. Because guess what happens? It takes us to a whole nother level of understanding why we was even put in this world for his purpose. It ain't got nothing to do with us. Life is bigger than us. Caprice, I heard you just said, put my accomplishment down and surrender. And if I do, there's amazing things on the other side, but I think one of the hard parts we are in the church right now, I think this is the pruning you're talking about, is not only are we having to maybe let some ideas of church die, organs or buildings or styles of music, fill in the blank, but I, as a leader, have to put my ego in check. I have to open myself to God calling me to have weird partnerships and uncomfortable conversations and to hear God's strange voice ring in my ear and say, no, come this way. Follow me. Faith. 
and maybe with a relationship or two, right, of love, of companionship that are open to this journey. But I think that's great counsel. And I will just say that it's a hard journey. And I think we're that there's a moment of pause right now that I hope that we as the church can do or we as church leaders can do and really do that surrendering for the sake of God's showing up in just hopeful ways in the lives of everyday people being transformed. Caprice, as always, I continue to believe that you're such a gift of God in my own life. And I'm so pleased that you were willing to join us today and to share your story, your wisdom, your own vulnerability. I love how you are just exactly who you are and you share with us where you are on the journey. And I'm I'm grateful to you for all that you're doing, um, particularly in, in Dubuque and with the Fountain of Youth. And just grateful that you were able to join us today. So thanks for your time and thanks for all you're doing. Blessings to you. And thanks to you, our listeners. We'll see you next time on Pivot. Thanks for joining us for this episode of our Pivot Podcast. For more leadership resources from LEAD, you can go to waytolead.org or from Faith Lead, go to faithlead.luthersem.edu.